Hi, this is Graham Brown and welcome to the Excel Podcast. The Excel Podcast is a platform for the bigger conversations about leadership in the 2020s. Who's leading? How are they leading? And what stories do they have to share? Through the stories of leaders, we'll address the big challenges of our times from the era of AI to the Asian century to nurturing a new generation of entrepreneurs. If you're enjoying these conversations, subscribe to the podcast at xlpodcast.org. Welcome to the Excel Podcast. My name is Graham Brown. This is all about leadership in the 21st century, the exponential era, leadership in the era of artificial intelligence and exponential connectivity, crisis. We find ourselves in one right now. So this podcast series is all about leaders from different areas of business, different areas of the community. I've talked to Tony Fernandez, obviously AirAsia. I've spoken to Sahar Hashimi, founder of Coffee Republic, Rod Drury, founder of Zero. Leaders in very different shapes and stripes, different opinions, different ways of looking at the problem. I'm joined today by who I would consider a leader in his own respect, Atul Tamernakar, who's the co-founder and chairman of the Global Schools Foundation based here in Singapore. Atul, welcome back. It's great to speak to you. Yes, uh, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been a while. So I think the last time we met was at the Institute of Directors event in Singapore. So I know you're, you're obviously, we're going to talk about your school legacy, but you're very much active in the business community as well. So this must be a bit of a testing time for you. We're right in the middle. We're recording this right in the middle of the pandemic. As a school, this must be a logistical challenge for you. I imagine just managing thousands of students to return to school, how you're going to do it. I mean, generally, that's tough anyway, but doing it in the, you know, in the context of the pandemic. How are things generally? How are, what's going on at the moment? Well, I, I can say it's been uh, pretty rocky uh, from the word go. It's been uh, very unpredictable. Uh, it's also been, I would say, it's almost like a roller coaster. You know, suddenly a week you are here and, and um, you know, the situation changes overnight and then the country goes into a complete lockdown. So while one can say it was a pretty roller coaster in nature, but to some extent it was also uh, you know, we got a lot of feelers coming in at the right time. So one of the things that I realized is uh, schools which had uh, dependency on technology to some extent were able to quickly realign their education models. Uh, but I think, uh, unfortunately, schools which did not use technology to a large extent uh, for, you know, managing their day-to-day -day course uh, probably were stuck up and were realizing that uh, suddenly, if the student is not in the school in a face-to-face -face session, uh, they were getting stuck. So this is not just limited to uh, some schools here in Asia, but also some schools in, I would say, some parts of ASEAN. And, and we've seen this happening uh, where governor of one of the provinces in Indonesia, their office reached out to us to say that, you know, can we have this virtual classroom? Because some of the school government schools were not really you know, aimed and equipped with this kind of infrastructure. So it is uh, been um, a bit of a movement for us, uh, but I think overall uh, schools which have been in the technology phase uh, were able to quickly cope up with the changing times. And I think that's been a good sign. And that is also telling in a big way that, look, technology is something is not more, no more, uh, it's uh, nice to have, 
it's it's a must have now the yeah. question is the degree of the must have can be defined and and some part of it may be optical in nature but many of it has now become deeply ingrained in the way our the current generation is actually coming up yeah yeah i imagine like you know you've obviously been a driver for technology in schools and we'll talk about data we'll talk about you know analytics and how you improve the whole experience as well in the learning environment but i imagine nobody could have commi- nobody could have predicted the pandemic and yet you know like you never set out to introduce technology to cope with a, a scenario like that but like you're saying now the fact that you have the technology it means you're a lot more agile you can adapt to anything that life you know or the world throws at you right and you've sort of adapted to that what do you think that sort of you know what kind of learnings have you sort of drawn from that generally i mean uh, we'll talk about your business as well your business background with ibm and forest computers as well but generally that whole idea of what agile really is now we're seeing it aren't we i mean around me i work a lot with startups for example and a lot of these startups were formulated in peacetime you know they had the spreadsheets and the the curves that went up in a nice hockey stick fashion and yet now a lot of these startups are suffering because they may have the projections but they don't have that agility that that attitude of doing whatever it takes and having the tools available just to get the job done when things start falling apart around them when things are different the new normal or whatever we want to call it have you sort of like you know from your perspective what kind of things have you seen what have you learned in these couple of months about business and education generally so i think uh, coming from technology background it certainly is helpful to understand how technology can help you build that agility uh the important aspect is uh, the ability of leadership to be able to have the sort of systems in place or to be able to have that willingness or the power to to be able to define agility as a prerequisite to a business uh we have seen many businesses who question any sort of you know market deflation market recession of course uh people in the business do predict recessions once in a while once in 12 years and many theses float around that but uh nobody could really uh foresee the the coming of pandemic and 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 particularly this goes to the entire uh, optimistic lobby which says you know nothing will happen i'm going to have business really scale up as a hockey stick it's, it's just going to go up and up and up and up and and well yeah there'll be some corrections but pandemic frankly speaking market initiated disruptions or uh, market distortions or you know certain large scale you know like gfc type of crisis uh, is something that one can think about but uh, naturally natural disasters or you know natural calamities of this nature probably uh, many of the generations have not seen mm. uh, even if you talk about the uh, tsunami in japan which we were a part of and we we uh, had to go through that entire episode of the tsunami and the day it happened kind of you know our school students were in the school so we had uh, a live experience of going through that and actually that really taught a very important lesson to us and that is never to imagine uh, that natural disasters cannot happen the 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 prediction of a natural disaster when we used to, when many used to experts used to say that oh well that's not going to happen you can have earthquakes you can have this but it will not affect your disaster it will not affect your 
businesses. And so we felt that, look, that's something which we should not take very lightly. As a team, Tsunami was a wake-up call for us. SARS of 2003 was the initial trigger. But uh, I think Tsunami really redefined the way we look at our businesses. And we kept saying that, look, you know, while uh, threats of terrorism and many other threats exist in a business, uh, nothing of the scale anybody could imagine that this will engulf the entire world at one go in a matter of weeks. And what we're looking at is uh, the all the 150 plus countries, you know, which have experienced this lockdown. Uh, and, and the effects of this, and I was chatting with some very eminent uh, people who've been fortunate to see the world war. And they said, you know, uh, the effects of the world war were pretty catastrophic in nature. And they expect the effects of this pandemic to be equally or more damaging in nature. And, and that probably applies to all the countries. That applies to nobody can escape that. We just had the prime minister, deputy prime minister of Singapore yesterday make a statement that, you know, Singapore is going to be uh, seeing a lot more uh, trouble times and and uh, in, in terms of growth, in terms of how quickly it can recover. Uh, these were not the statements that were coming in from any country post-SARS because SARS was seen to be very limited to a specific area of the world, whereas this has affected everyone from Americas to Asia. So I think the moral of the story is never take it for granted. Um, and especially when it comes to education, I think we just have to imagine that we have to be prepared to be able to deal with every sort of calamity, be it earthquake, be it tsunami, be it pandemics of this nature. The, the fact that we should be able to create a system where education can go on without disruptions is really what we need to look at. And this also means that a lot of innovative solutions and products will start emerging. Uh, the pace of the introduction, uh, the growth that they will experience is going to be phenomenal. Yeah, uh, and yeah. we are seeing this in our daily lives. We are seeing how people students are switching, uh, the face-to-face -face tutorials or the evening classes they used to attend, all that's happening on virtual classes. We are we're beginning to see teachers engaging in uh, many activities, which we will discuss uh, as we go forward. And uh, this is, virtual is becoming a part of life. Virtual was seen to be limited to office conferences and you know boardrooms and you know people only in the commercial world were using it. And of course, uh, with the introduction of Facebook and you, you know, many other tools uh, that people started using, FaceTime, etc., people were used to this. So I think that was really the enabler because people were used to in their daily lives using uh, WhatsApp, you know, video calling and FaceTime video calling, and they got used to it. So picking up something was not very difficult for them. Yeah. Then it was a matter of you know what tools you use and how do you really get activated. Yeah, there was an interesting article in The Economist a few weeks back, and they were talking about these, what they called exogenous shocks to the system, which are those black swan events. And the article drew parallels with previous events. So we had, for example, the American Civil War, which I think if you look at the numbers, more, more Americans died in the American Civil War than all the other wars added up. And yet what that did was, whilst there was a catastrophe, the net upside was that it emancipated black American slaves because without the civil war, it never would have happened. And in the same way, for example, you had the first world war of a massive loss of lives, massive disruption. And yet that then accelerated 
transformation in the sense that women got the vote in the UK, for example, in 1918, women were for the first time granted the right to vote. And I think Satya Nadella, just a couple of weeks back, was also saying, CEO of Microsoft, we've had two years of transformation in two months. So, you know, when we think about education is what, do you, you know, some people look at this as a holding pattern. Okay, we're just going to see this out until we're all back to normal. But is there is there a sense that there are some things that are not going back in the box? Now they're out. That's it changed forever in education. What do you see? So in education, uh, I think uh, we will experience something what Satya has said. And uh, if you look at education, basically it's two parts to it. The one vertical is about teaching and the other vertical is about learning. Now, when you look at both the verticals, uh, while there would be innovative uh, you know, trends or innovative systems that may be used in each of those, I think the biggest effects that we will see would be in the use of technology or the use of these innovative products to accelerate the learning outcomes. And by this, what I mean is, you see, uh, let's take a six-year-old student uh, who's already access to video calling, access to smartphones, access to you know, desktop computers at home, et cetera. He's already, he or she is already aware of the technology. They know uh, how to get information on Google. They know how to make Zoom calls. And in fact, the other day, there was a young girl, six-year-old, who was playing on a virtual play being played by one of the organizations in Singapore. And she, during the rehearsals, I heard her telling some of the older ones, uh, they said, you know, can you help, get your help parents to help you when we will start a play? And she said, oh, I don't need to. I mean, I, I just know how to start the meeting and and set everything up. And, and and somebody asked her, so how, so don't your parents need to help you? And she said, no, I do it every day in the school. <laughs> so, you know, she happens to be a student of our school. That's another story. But uh, so coming back to your point, I think both the verticals will see a massive shift in the way uh, teaching and learning occurs. Um, teachers have been moving very quickly with times, but I can tell you the pace at which the younger generation today is moving is probably unbelievable. We've never seen children adopt to technology, accept um, the ways of working with technology in, in such a massive way that it's going to make a big difference positively to their learning outcomes and, and they're going to grow up far more knowledgeable as compared to the generations before the millennials. They're going to grow up uh, in a far more objective way. They will, they will attend to situations or problems or leadership issues in a much more factual way rather than emotional way. You know? So we're going to see some of these positive traits emerge for this uh, alpha generation. And we will also see that uh, not only that, that will lead to a further cycle of chain of events, leading to better innovation, leading to, you know, better ways of educating people. You know, whenever we talk about education, there's always the 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 one child in the ruralist area, which who doesn't have access to it. But I think mobile has changed that. Uh, by and large, uh, I think eight out of 10 people have a mobile phone uh, and that is a smartphone. So access to information continues to be there. Children are growing knowledgeable. I think what's really happening is 
the skills. And I think the education now is getting focused towards the skills rather than retention of knowledge. Uh, mm-hmm. The road learning is slowly phasing out, although Asia continues to champion that and, and continues to have an emphasis on that. But I think beginning to see uh, a change in the attitudes of the people, a change in the attitudes of the institutions, and we will likely have more positive trends emerging out of the education world over, be it Africa, be it Americas, be it Asia, be it Middle East. Uh, the generations are going to be extremely well-organized. And we will also continue to see the downside of it. And there are many, many downsides that one can talk about, but I think we'll talk about it at some other time. Yeah, it's not a. It's not necessarily an easy conversation, is it? Because so much is vested in a way of doing things and a way of teaching that worked for us in a way. The previous generations, rote learning was how it happened. I remembered all the kings and queens of England since the tenth century. I probably still remember it. There's a piece of my brain that retor- you know retains that useless knowledge, and yet now you're talking about that six-year-old girl straight on the mobile phone can look it up on Google. What's the point of remembering that? And I, I was thinking the other day I had a conversation with my son. That's all. He's 14 now, and he goes to Dulwich. And he, we were talking about university, and uh, you know, the option was there that he might not go to university. He might not want to go to university. He might want to do something else. For my generation, that just wasn't an option. It was university or nothing. That was the only roadmap. But for him, you know, he said, well, you know, Google says you don't need a degree now. So therefore, maybe I don't need a degree if I want to get into computer programming. That That's a tough decision. And that's a tough conversation to have. How do we have those conversations now? I mean, not necessarily kids are driving these conversations, but people are asking questions. And if you start asking questions about university, then, you know, does the whole thing unravel or do we need to think about the problem differently? So this is not a very unusual conversation. Uh, this is a very common conversation for all the families. Um, with the ad- with the advancement of technology, with the advancement of digital economy, uh, the idea or the fact that jobs used to be performed in a particular physical space have gone away. Mm. So therefore, you have you have jobs that are required to be done in a specific space, like manufacturing. You have jobs that are required to be done in a in a consumer facing, like banks, for example. You know that also is fading away. And now you, with this last two months of uh, virtual uh, working and working from home, everybody is kind of realized that most of the jobs can still be done over technology and over video conferencing and uh, by simply having conversations. I mean, uh, at some point, we see, we saw about roughly a decade or two back, there was this whole business of outsourcing and uh, you know, politically, every every way it got you know kind of treated or mistreated. But look, outsourcing can happen anywhere. It can happen. Jobs can be outsourced from China into US uh, with the advent of technology. So, the technology or the digital access to jobs and skills is making it possible for us to perform many of the jobs which were done in a particular physical space. As a result of which, the uh, the idea that one doesn't need to go to university. It's actually enforced by the fact that the child sees an opportunity to do some jobs by getting access to information on the web, getting access to, you know, uh, 
certain uh, tools or certain repositories of information or knowledge bases. And he thinks that this is possible. This is absolutely possible for me to learn this. I may not may want to go to the university and do it. I mean, I know many cases where kids have actually not gone to the university, but have actually done brilliantly well in their lives and have picked up more vital information for purpose of learning or performing their jobs and being able to do it. I mean, there are, there are kids I know who have become leading singers and musicians in industry, uh, be it Asia or be it in the Hollywood. I know the, the aspect that you do not need a formal education is beginning to gain ground. But the question is, are employers willing to look away from it? Are, are people who are going to hire these young millennials or the young alpha students who come up are beginning to look away to say that, look, formal education is the best form of branding or the certificate that I need to have. Certainly, it will continue to carry value. Certainly, it will continue to have some sort of endorsement to say that this particular child is able to uh, meet my basic threshold of, of what I need to hire. Uh, you know, when we hire, I think we are beginning to see ourselves, for example, beginning to see a change in the way we look at degrees. We are looking at competencies constantly. We are looking at what is the way the child is communicating. I mean, just, just two weeks back, I was interviewing a bunch of folks uh, for digital marketing, and, and we realized that, you know, the kind of communication the kids were getting into, just, you know, five-year-old, six-year-old experience uh, kids, uh, amazing, I mean, the clarity they had. And, and uh, somebody was talking about that, you know, my the way I look at myself actually happened at the school level and not really at the college level. By the time I went to a college, uh, there were kids who were far brighter and better than who I was, but I was able to articulate better. I was able to connect with the people better. So this is something that we need to ingrain students in the schools to be able to carry themselves confidently, to be able to articulate themselves confidently. And this is really happening. And schools are really the place where this is happening. So I think uh, I would not be surprised where future hires beginning to look at uh, the way the person carries himself or herself and beginning to see how they are able to use the learnings that they have in order to perform the jobs better. How can they understand my customer better? How can they understand my teammates better? How can they create more innovative solutions on the job? So this is, I think one can go on and on and one can see that this is not a matter of uh, choice. It's going to happen. And I would not be surprised uh, where, and I was talking to uh, somebody from the high learning and they said, of course, thanks to COVID or not thanks to COVID, they're seeing, they're seeing a huge decline in the enrollments in the university. Some have switched to online. Some are going to look at, uh, very aggressively look at introducing virtual courses, virtual courses to be introduced to students. And I've seen such business models in the past. There used to be a Thomson Reuters owned university called U2 in Singapore here. Uh, and it was done by uh, one of my ex-colleagues from IBM uh, who who later went on to other head other businesses. And probably they were 15, 20 years back, they were too early. They were offering exactly the same courses on virtual with 20 universities, but still people saw there was no need to do that. But now universities, every single university has a choice. Uh, COVID or no COVID, I think people are beginning to see that I may save time. Uh, I may get the same degree and certification. So 
learning, the ways of learning will change, the ways of uh, educating will change. And we will see probably a few decades by when the percentage of these virtual interactions probably will go far higher compared to face-to-face -face interactions. And uh, I'm sure universities will come up with their own theses to say that, look, uh, uh, there is no degree of love lost in any communication if it is done by virtual or it is done by face-to-face, -face, which means that the value of face-to-face -face will probably decline in the years to come or the mm. decades to come. So we're beginning to see some issues uh, as a result of that. And uh, the more digital comes up with some very, very unique problems which our generations have not seen, which even the millennials have not seen. And now the alpha generation is kind of experiencing. And uh, so we feel that there's going to be some uh, alternatives. Uh, and of course, people will find cures to many of the downsides that we are beginning to see. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fascinating conversation, this whole idea of schooling and education, you know, and obviously before they were the same, same, but, you know, education, it, it's evolving, isn't it? And the idea of school and university is evolving as well and changing. And like the idea of work as well. Work is what we do rather than the place we go to. Do you think there ever be a time, I don't know if it'd be on your watch or in the future, that school won't be a place? I mean, you know, the physical aspect of school, you know, obviously years and years, there's still a real value in, in gathering, especially the social aspect of school as a physical place. But the extreme views of the future, do you think that is in our lifetime, that school would be an online concept entirely? Uh, I think you brought about a good point about change and uh, the fact that whether transformations like these are possible. Uh, let, me, let me talk about change first. You know, uh, businesses are very used to change. Uh, customers change, so businesses have no choice but to change. Higher learning institutions change to a large extent because you know I, I see the type of courses that were available and the courseworks, uh, let's say ten years back or fifteen years back, has changed. New courses have been introduced. You know, courses on AI, robotics, uh, and many more new type of courses which are aligned to new type of opportunities in the business are coming up. But schools, very strangely, are the most resistive to change. Uh, and I don't know whether this is part of the legacy that we carry forward, but the schools continue to teach the same way. They taught six decades back, uh, or five decades back, or three decades back, or even for that matter, two decades back. And it is part of the reason is to do with psychology of the teachers and the institutions, and collectively also of the parents. Because parents believe that the way they were taught and the, the, the way they came up about their childhood, their children should experience the same way. And to some extent, they feel that, no, I think there's a value being uh, diminished by the fact that these new things are being done. But post-COVID, I think parents are going to change their minds. Uh, they're going to see that, look, oh, it actually makes a, a good difference for my child that they are attending classes on virtual um, and, and uh, they are able to be more productive versus, um, you know, uh, looking at possibilities. Of, I mean, last two months, we haven't come across any parents who have been cribbing that, oh, my child has been sitting at home and it's so difficult to have them and manage them. And, and I'm, I'm kind of, you know, spending more time to look after the child. And I don't think any single parent has said that. There could be one or two children where, they are people who are special needs kids, but that's fine. That's understandable. Uh, but 
when it comes to acceptance, so there's a psychology at play here. There's a consumer behavior at play. There's also an element of, uh, oh, if children can actually sit outside the school for two months and learn it, sooner or later, there could be spaces where uh, these are not spaces part of the schools, but they could be laboratories. They could be, you know, for example, uh, uh, kids could be spending a week sitting inside the NTU or NUS in Singapore, or for that matter, in some sort of space or an institution uh, outside Singapore or outside their comfort homes. So I begin to see that um, these are possibilities and spaces where children would spend more time would be deemed to be those where children learning uh, children would be learning better. For example, um, there's a nice uh, electric mobility lab in NTU, for example, which showcases all sort of things happening in the electric cars. You can see a BMW there. You can see a Chinese car. And the technology is how they are evolving. And I would like to have children spend, let's say, three days a week, uh, at least of each grade, to understand how things are moving. Because when you see those things in a way, uh, in in face to face, you actually start believing that this can make a big difference. So we've been talking to industry players on webinars, and we've been talking about that the the progress of internships, the progress of uh, industry experience, actually has been diminishing. But I think this is an optionally for us. Let's take COVID as a as a trigger, and let's see how we can get children into your factories, into your businesses, maybe virtually, but at least they can learn about, you know, things that uh, they have not seen before. I mean, automobile plant or uh, chemical plant or, you know, things which have been only on the news or the YouTube, but now they can see in person how things happen. So I think this is uh, a great opportunity for all businesses to really pick it up and tie up with institutions of their choice be it high learning or be it schools. And, you know, we can pick up these kids from eighth grade or sixth grade onwards to 12th grade and really give them these immersion programs so that this adds to their experience, it adds to their virtual uh, understanding. And, and some of these things will be, I mean, I remember my days when I had to do an internship uh, of three months as part of my engineering submission. And I had done this in a very remote city in India called Jamshedpur which is the home to many of the Tata steel plants. And, and Tata Steel is now one of the largest steel producers in the world. And I had to go there and literally stay in a dorm, in a hostel, uh, and spend about two months and then carry a certificate back. But today I can give a preview into a Tata Steel company or, for that matter, a Nat Steel here or any other steel company in the world by simply taking kids on a virtual tour and giving that experience in terms of what it means to produce steel or what it means to produce cement what it means to produce electronics, what it means to produce an apple. You know, uh, so I'm going to really chase my friends in the industry, be it in Copatino or uh, in a different places, uh, to try and see, hey, can you create these virtual tours so these kids can join in? Maybe you can have thousands of kids at a time, but yeah, they can see really things which are, you know, inspiring to them and be it Tesla or whatever. I mean, there are top 10 brands of the world that kids have on their uh, you know, eyes and ears all the time. So why not create something unique into a peek into their experience? So that's... Yeah, yeah, I like the idea as well. I mean, as a vision, I think it works both ways, doesn't it? For those industry um, experts as well, they get insights because sometimes kids ask the quote-unquote dumb questions, like, why is it done like that? And, 
you know, it's like the emperor's new clothes analogy, the tale, isn't it? It's like they will challenge something for what it is with, without experience and they can ask questions and those industry, those brands, those, you know, whether they're product managers or marketing managers, they, they can actually see the next generation, how they think and feel beyond a focus group. You know, how are they interacting with that cement factory or how are they interacting with that tea production process or whatever it is? And for them, it gets that kind of feedback as well, rather than just being a learning experience for the, the students, it can also be a learning experience for industry as well. And how important that is when people talk about diversity of opinion for innovation, isn't it? That you can bring it both ways. Because, you know, you look around, there's all technologies holding up a phone here. It was undoubtedly teenagers that paved the way. They were the pathfinders and how to use these things like messaging, social media, and so on. And how important they are really for industry in understanding what comes next. So I like the idea. I mean, I know people in industry who would be fascinated by this idea as well. Um, just I did a, a podcast recently with a friend who's um, director of innovation at Intel in China. And for him, that would be fascinating. So maybe that's a conversation we should have off air. Okay, just bringing this back. I like, you know, you mentioned something at all, which I thought was fascinating. And we talked about this before is that your traditional education as an engineer, I mean, that's as traditional as it gets for an Indian family and a son, right? You studied as an engineer, you came to Singapore, how long, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Yeah, 30 years ago. 30 years ago with Far East computers, are Far East computers still around? Yes, I think they have merged with one of the corporates. Okay, so you came with a, a very traditional um, IT company to Singapore. You were then, uh, you moved to IBM, you became country manager of IBM. I'm fascinated by this, this moment in your life where you had a conversation with somebody about the idea of leaving IBM and starting your own business. So can you take us back to that time? Because there's, there's so many sort of interesting insights that come out of this idea of quote unquote, the corporate dropout rather than the Stanford dropout. You saw a problem, you wanted to fix the problem. Who did you have that conversation with? And take us back to that moment. So um, uh, I actually worked only for two companies in my life. Um, Far East Computers was part of the uh, company in India called HCL, uh, which I was a part of before I came to Singapore. And, um, and then the second uh, employer was the IBM. Um, I think uh, if I go back to uh, the days when uh, Singapore had just been reeling out of the GFC crisis after 2008-2009 and, uh, and then suddenly there came the Y2K problems and I was in IBM. Of course, there were a lot of things, interesting things happening. Um, some of these, I mean, I remember in the IBM days uh, to have seen the wearable goggles and the wearable goggles had a screen on that. And they had a small microphone. And I know that some of these products now actually have become very standard, um, you know, defense uh, uh, equipment. Uh, and so a lot of exciting work was going on in IBM here. There were a lot of research being done on uh, technology, on uh, alternatives to Ethernet, uh, which was called IBM token rings. And, and by looking at all those, it appeared to me that Singapore is a great place for research. Uh, and while I was at IBM, I did look at options of, you know, 
given a little bit of lateral attitude that I have uh, to try and you know dish, uh, play my hands into research because there used to be a lot of research happening in Singapore uh, and, and the government was encouraging it to MNCs to kind of bring the research here. And and what what I realized is from my own experience, you know, I saw the my first device in the hand was a Casio data bank, you know, where you store the numbers. So it's calculator come maybe 256k of memory. I bought it from Simlim Square here, and and I was a very proud carrier of that. And then it migrated to uh, a bigger thing, and then became a Palm Pilot. So in IBM, we were like, you know, making uh, our contacts on Palm Pilot. And then there's some some more upgrades came in that. And then suddenly there was a, a mobile phone company from, I think, UK, U O2, uh, which came up with the smartphones with Windows and all that. And I realized that, look, the, the phone's technology, while it was emerging, and on one hand, you had these contacts, et cetera, coming together. I said, some point in time, these two are going to merge. Because you had to literally look up in Palm Pilot and it was under 3Com or something company. And then you had to look at uh, the number and then dial the number on the mobile phone. So I said, you know, why can't the memory can be upgraded? So obviously, you know, obviously markets are also thinking same way. And at some point you had these O2 phones with lovely Windows interface, et cetera, emerge. But coming back to your point, uh, I, I saw Singapore was a great place uh, for taking ideas forward. You know, people always say America is always great to have great ideas. But I think a lot of my friends uh, just during around Y2K started migrating to you, uh, to the U.S. and the Europe, uh, you know, thinking that this could be great opportunities for technology. Uh, but since I had a good sense of uh, the technical aspects of it, given my past background and understanding the product uh, aspect of it and, and the branding aspect of it, uh, I realized that um, there could be an idea which could be taken forward. So while I was looking for ideas, um, and then the Y2K happened, and then suddenly there was the GFC effects coming up in businesses, and tech companies started downsizing. Um, so one of the ideas that really came about was the observation of the fact that uh, there were a lot of Asians who were coming here, uh, but probably they didn't have access to an affordable education. Because many of the expats who used to come to Singapore were mostly either confined to the schools of the government of the MOE, or they had to kind of study in an international curriculum. Then, of course, they had to go to schools like UWC and, and the others. And so there was no mid-market options available there. And I could see that uh, parents who were not able to afford the international education uh, probably wanted to have that calendar because, you know, the Singapore systems and the uh, international systems have a different calendar. Uh, the Singapore systems have an Australian type of calendar, whereas the international schools here follow the U Europe and UK uh, or the US calendar. So as a result of that, uh, those who didn't fit in, either way of budget or of timelines, uh, decided to keep their children away. So there, there were a lot of families who had like two homes, you know, managing the, the fathers working here, the, the families in some other country. And uh, that was one. And then, then there were a lot of other reasons. But I think... Um, what came to my mind is to really try an idea of a school to see whether we can bridge this gap and you know open a school and leave it to the people and uh, let the school run. So I thought you know maybe it's like a, a venture that I can spin off, uh, get it established, and then leave it on its own and then leave it to the people and and that will just kind of you know take care of itself. So it was purely a community initiative, uh, and when I started it. I saw the way the, the 
the growth started happening. Uh, obviously, it was a market that was not discovered by anybody. Uh, and, and then obviously the scale, at the rapid growth at which it happened uh, made me confident that the fact that uh, there is a demand and people are looking for it. It's, it's, it's like, you know, you come up with various innovations or innovative products and suddenly you find that there's a massive scale. I mean, Zoom, for example, is a company where uh, we were using it for the last five years for our own uh, you know, business interests. But then, uh, like I was reading an article yesterday, the whole world knew about Zoom come March third week and fourth week, and everybody was kind of you know opening accounts on them. So it is a matter of such demand uh, that uh, we realized that in the schools, and we thought that uh, this is a great idea to actually spend some more time on. Wow. Uh, and I could have gone back to IBM and after I finished my leave of absence, and and go back uh, to do my technology work. But then I realized, hey, you know the things of technology we can actually bring in here as well make things easier, you know, bring out the redundant jobs, uh, make the workflow processes much more smoother. And, and so that's how the engagement began. And it over, over no time, I realized that this has become a full-time kind of engagement. There's no way you have got, got to look at it. You must make sure that the right things are done. And, and with a bit of a, a knack to do it precisely and, you know, use technology in a much more friendly way, a non-penetrative way that, the school education then becomes far more enjoyable. So I think that's where I, I suddenly developed a lot of interest in the schools and to see how technology can make it enjoyable for the teachers, enjoyable for the students, not see it like a you know, military drill that I've got to go and appear before a few of my friends and, and the teachers and kind of do that as a daily checklist. So that became the really the driving point. So for me, it's, it's like driving the schools using the technology. So I keep going and asking people, you know, uh, do you have a problem? Uh, do, you, do you want to deliver something which is different? And as many times I get many ideas through these conversations. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it does uh, the feedback that we receive from parents uh, who have been very, very positively supporting. And they are less fearful about, you know, talking their brains out, you know. They, they would like to tell us black is black, white is white. Uh, without so we we love that unfiltered kind of version conversation, and we take that. Uh, of course, you've got to discount sometimes. Uh, people do make a big mountain out of a mole, but you would understand that it's a sentiment, it's a perception, it's something that a person is feeling that they are able to communicate to you. So we do have these uh, various uh, innovations that keep going on and on, and at any point in time, we like have a, a pile of dashboard of things that we have got to do and achieve for the technology. For example. Uh, paying fees used to be like you've got to write a check or you pay by credit card, so nobody pays that. And uh, Singapore had the system of uh, gyro. So we said, why don't we use gyro for it? But none of the banks were supporting it. So we went to DBS and we said, can you do this for us? And they said, yes, 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 we've just come up with something, you know, but do you have like a software engineer to program this? We would like to give it to you, but you've got to write your programs. But of course, fortunately, it was... Uh, uh, foresight that we had that we believe that technology is something that you can't buy off the shelf. Many of the value additions that we have done to our business has actually been things which are not available off the shelf. So, you know, integrating the whole billing system into our uh, parent-student portal and making sure that it becomes seamless so that, you know, the, the billing happens on a 
on a timely basis, uh, accurate basis, and yet the money, the parent doesn't have to really go run, running around issuing checks or worrying about the dates that they need to follow. So this is just an example. I'm sure market is caught up with it. Uh, but we try to do things which are vague. We try to use technology to kind of, you know, make it less vague, make it more practical in nature. And uh, just a live example of this morning uh, is uh, there were some new directives of, for the schools where schools are required by the government uh, to mark daily entry and exit onto a safe entry portal. And uh, so we, we asked yesterday how things are going to be done. And they said, oh, well, every child has to go to the class and, you know, use their devices to kind of mark their NRIC and, you know, just mark their presence. Uh, but I said, OK, then somebody came up with an idea, said, OK, we can make a barcode and the teacher has to just go and scan it. And this morning we said, why don't we make it simpler? Why don't we just allow the teacher to use the attendance to be able to mark it directly into the government portals using the API so that you don't have to do this again and again. So these are the type of things that we want to use to make it easier for people. So challenges like COVID can come and go, but we use this to really make uh, new solutions and make the experience better so that the, the time and material is actually spent on the learning aspect of the child rather than uh, you know, creating something which is becoming too problematic and, and actually it's a value destructor. So we want to make things which are value additive in nature uh, and, and not just use technology for that. For, for Sometimes it is also about creating processes that are more value adding in nature. Uh, and this, sometimes these don't require a technology. So the, these, are the, these are the things that we feel uh, education today are in the school space. One has got to be really fast moving, uh, look at how things are moving and be able to adopt to new things and new processes. Who knows if this, there are some theories that uh, COVID will, vaccines will emerge just before the US elections uh, to kind of get Mr. Trump elected, or it could be that this could go on for another two years and we could see the same thing going on and on with countries kind of reinforcing, like Korea has just reinforced uh, the you know regulations on safe distancing again, because the cases went up. So I think schools have to be listening to what is going on and the leadership of the schools or the high learning institutions has to be very, very proactive in allowing change being adopted into the organization within the fastest possible time. And the speed there will become extremely vital. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's really, you know, I think what you're doing, and we've interacted quite a lot. I've interacted with many of your staff as well, the teachers, um, the, the faculty, your partners and your approach to education is really one of like you I mean you talk about building ecosystems but really starting with solving the problem and not being afraid of going out and asking those questions which it's easy isn't it you, you sort of hide yourself away you build um, a wall between you and the market the teachers the the children and you know that then becomes a distance between you and the problem, but you're actively out there. I know I see you walking around the school, you're talking to everybody, you're actively out there in the community, out there talking to um, business leaders as well. And really that's what it takes. I mean, I wonder as well, just like where the energy comes from is <laughs> like, you know, how do you sort of manage all that? But I guess the other part as well, I mean, just sort of like rounding up, 
you know, lead, leadership, I, I feel like increasingly people are talking about leadership, not just in business, but in education as well for students. And then there's this important part. And we, we talked about leadership when we did the, uh, the School of the Future podcast, the first one, we talked about leadership together. And, but the key part here is that it's not a popularity contest, is it? Like being a leader, sometimes you have to take people where they need to go rather than they, they want to go, especially now where we need leaders to take us out of habit and take us you know, into that next level that would not happen if we just kind of were left to our own devices. And even if you go back historically, people like JFK took us to the moon when everybody was saying it was a waste of time. And Martin Luther King, you know, who was, I think, the second ranked or the top two of the most inspirational people in American history. At the time when he was actively out there, he was unpopular. You know, he like Gallup would poll these these leaders in the public, and they'd find they had less than fifty percent approval rates. But you know, by the end of the, the the century, he was like number one, number two. So it's not a popularity contest. And I, what you're doing as well, especially with education and children and learning and like children's futures as well. You know, like just trying to summarize advice of people going down this route, whether they're doing it in education or whether they're doing it in community or whether they're doing it in business. What have you learned as being, as a leader, in that whole idea is that not everybody's going to agree with you. Not every, you know, some people are going to take issue with what you say. And sometimes you're going to have doubts about what you do, like what you think and your vision as well. How have you managed all of that and how have you got better at it? You know, um, I think there is, you believe it or not, there is a contest of leadership. And and there's a contest to be seen, the contest to be heard, and contest to be, uh, you know, seen to be doing things. I think if we go into that space, uh, somebody who goes into that mindset that a leader must be there on social media every day, or you know, must be tweeting every second hour, or must be uh, you know uh, seen on all the television panels on the new media, I think that's a very very fake argument to be a leader. I, and personally, I think so. Uh, people may not agree. I, I think leadership is not about uh, being seen to be doing something. Leadership is about doing something where somebody can get benefit. So the constant thing that is on my mind on, on a daily basis is what problem can I solve today? Uh, there, is, there is a very, very vast team. We have more than 1,500 very leading capable uh, leaders in our uh, and, and teachers in our schools. But the point is, sometimes there are certain issues or problems or challenges or they could be concerns uh, which need some attention and which probably needs the leadership attention because, you know, that's where you combine the, the financial power with the uh, ideas and you can really, you know, jumpstart a lot of things. So for me, it's been a very simple journey. For me, it's like, I look at the students, I look at the parents, and I look at the teachers, the three communities that we are dealing with. And the fourth is a community at large, you know, around the schools, um, bordering schools, or, or for that matter, in the countries or, or the homes we stay in. These four communities to me are essential driving organs of the society. Uh, you take parent community, for example. Um, they are one of the, the most directly involved community in any education, be it you know school education or college. 
they know exactly what's happening they know exactly how their child is performing and they are part and parcel of the child's journey so for me it's important to understand what are the biggest things on parents mind what are the concerns that they are sending to us what are their what are the issues that they may be facing or they may be concerned about which may affect the children in their growth in their uh, you know progress uh, so we look at that zone or that community segment we look at the other community segment which is of the students there is a complete different chill understanding between the millennial parents and the alpha students today if you spend like even a few hours with them you get to know or at least you know what's important to them i mean for them it's important to look good on the profile of a whatsapp that for them is like big thing you know i, I must get my profile right and few other kids have done the profile in this way and that way and i can't get it and their nose is better and my eyebrows are drooping and this and that i mean this is really the generation that we are facing these kind of challenges and we keep hearing the same thing again and again where children and i spoke in the beginning of my conversation that there are massive downsides that we have begin to see but we got to settle those downsides because education is the only way we can you know uh, come up with remedies for it so going back to so you have this student segment of the community and third is a teaching community because teaching community is is really not about building knowledge it's about building values it is about you know being fearful of the nature doing good things about what is required for global warming or you know bringing in the sort of mindset or thinking and at the end of it and i mean i've i've heard this conversations in many countries where in asia for example children don't speak too much because if they speak they're seen to be kind of you know being less res- respectful of the teachers um and you can see this in east asia but the point is big, people are beginning to voice out um and voicing not necessarily has to be on social media i i am not a i am not a fan of social media i don't i don't have a presence i probably put a instagram of a photo maybe once in 3 months but i i can see that that's not really part of my life or expression but it is becoming important to kids uh, the tiktok generation the instagram generation it's it's really affecting their lives so we have to deal with the students we have to understand where they are going to be drifted away uh, in a negative sense and how can we address those concerns and then so with these three communities then the large community of the residents or the neighborhood which is also important to us you know when schools are performing or schools are doing good the neighbors are your biggest neighbors are the biggest uh, word of mouth uh, they the school legacies are established over decades we just have a two decade presence uh, in some of the countries but i think our neighborhood speaks a lot when i go back to locations and i meet neighbors say in a singapore context uh, in in the machin or the queenstown area and they keep talking about very good things about the school and these are ordinary folks living in ordinary houses around the neighborhood and and uh, once i remember i had a conversation with a gentleman who was one of the deputy ceos of one of the ministries here and he said oh i keep going to the uh, my mom who stays just across the road and she talks about your school and your kids very disciplined way and uh, you know so compliments like that really give you a, mean a lot so we have to engage with these four communities so for me it's been really a daily engagement of how do i listen to these communities how do i 
take information from here? What can I do with this? What can I, uh, uh, you know, make it easier for these communities? So it's it's all about making that experiential journey a meaningful journey. Uh, education can be always very stressful for everyone, be whatever generations they are. But we're going to introduce some element of relaxation. We've got to introduce for them to see that, look, this can be done. You know, I don't have to become a hundred percentile achiever in all sense. I mean, that's where we brought in the concept of nine gems and we said, look, you you are good in some area. You've got to discover what that area is. Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned about your child, likewise. You know, when I was talking to my son when he was growing up, he was like, oh, I don't want to end up doing this. I, I want to do something different. I want to produce music. But I was the one who was saying, no, 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 no. Music will not get you money to bread your earn your bread. But our own students have proved this wrong. One yeah. of our students is doing very well in the music industries now. So there is there is a, a lot of change happening. Uh, we are we have to change along with the generations, uh, with the current generation of parents and students, and we have to see that look, uh, we will always have a myopia of things, but we got to understand that look, there is a perspective that exists. Uh, we have to go according to that perspective. And I think we just have to take care of these four you know, uh, communities. And as long as we take care of them and they begin to see something good happening in their lives, even if it's an understanding change I can create in a child who is not necessarily the best performer, but a child who understands that he or she was better performing year on year or compared to two years back, or it is better performing in one subject, it is going to be the the way forward for the child to be able to look at that as an area of interest and see how he or she can, you know, emerge out of this and discover themselves. Education is now becoming a discovery exercise. And uh, we want people to be discovering themselves. I mean, that's how they will emerge as good global citizens. Love it. I've really enjoyed our conversation at all. I think it's positive and inspiring. And, you know, obviously, you know, not afraid of ducking the tough issues as well. And, um, yeah, I know you're talking about social media as well. I mean, next time you log into LinkedIn, please accept my ad request on LinkedIn because it's been set, I think it's outstanding for about two months. I don't think you're a regular on LinkedIn. But I think, yeah, maybe you, these conversations, you need to have your own podcast as well. I know you've got one for the GIS School of the Future, which is a great podcast with the teachers, children, and your all of your ecosystem as well. But you need to get your story out there more because I think it touches people in many different aspects as well. I mean, me from the business community, but there are many people who can learn from this as well. It's not just about, I mean, education is everything. Like you say, it's life. So it affects everybody in many different ways. But the whole message that you're putting out as well, not just about education, but you know, being part of the community, responsive and empathic as well, is so important at these times. Atul, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for sharing your insights and your story. Thank you, Grant. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the XL Podcast with me, Graham Brown. To subscribe and discover more conversations, go to www.xlpodcast.org.